0: Hello, and welcome to the Market Weekly Podcast. I'm Daniel Morris, Chief Market Strategist, and this week I'm joined by a duo, Ed Lees and Ulrich Fugman, heads of the Environmental Strategies Group. Welcome, Ed. Welcome, Ulrich.
1: Thank you very much. Hi, Daniel. Thank you.
0: Of course, the COP26 Summit has just ended, and I think we're probably all still assessing the outcomes. Maybe safe to say that probably wasn't anyone that was entirely thrilled. Hopefully not too many people that were entirely disappointed. Everyone got perhaps just a a bit of what they wanted. So I'd like to hear from you, Uh, your own assessment. You are investors in companies that champion greener policies. So from that perspective, then, what are your key takeaways from COP26?
2: Well, thank you very much, Daniel, and thank you for having us. Well, I think uh, it was uh, sort of good COP, bad COP, if you will, and we can uh, start maybe with some of the results that we think we've achieved through COP. One, India committing uh, to net zero by 2070. Uh, We have now about 137 countries uh, across the globe uh, that are now committing to net zero. I think one of the biggest takeaways, really, uh, which came very late in the COP26 was the closer cooperation between China and the U.S. on climate related issues. One of the big themes for this year, and, and one of the things that really hurt the environmental theme and certainly put it under pressure, has been the uncertainty and the rhetoric between China and the U.S., as well as the pressure on supply chains, as well as a result. Uh, The U.S. have certainly made it hard for Chinese uh, solar manufacturers, as an example, to bring in uh, Chinese solar products uh, into the U.S. Uh, So, so I would say that's a a key positive. But also on the natural capital side, there were some really interesting things going on where 141 countries have been agreeing to uh, reverse uh, deforestation by 2040. So those are some of the the, the key positive uh, takeaways from, from from my point of view. So why am I a little disappointed? Well, you know, despite those pledges and and despite the progress that we've made, uh, when we consider our path uh, to uh, net zero and we think about the Paris Agreement. Uh, trying to limit temperatures to about 1.5 to 2 degrees, uh, really what COP26, with the pledges that we have thus far, uh, really gets us to about 1.8 degrees. So still, we're falling short of the, uh, the target uh, and where we, uh, where we want to be. Uh, maybe lastly, I think there was a lot of people that were disappointed about last-minute change in uh, the wording around uh, the phasing out of coal, which was changed to phasing down. And what China certainly committed to uh, was not to expand their coal production outside of Uh, China and indeed will continue to try and reduce coal production uh, that does not have CO2 abatement, meaning that it doesn't completely rule out the further build-out of coal with associated CO2 abatement technologies uh, associated with it. But I also think that we need to be a bit cautious in this regard. Uh, What we're seeing in China is that 65% of energy production still comes from uh, coal. And uh, there's a priority as well uh, between energy policy and economic growth. And hence, uh, I think there's few observers, including ourselves, that had really believed in a, in, in China committing to a full phase out uh, as it's also prioritizing uh,
1: economic growth. Uh, so, I think, frankly, it was as good as we could get on that side. Yeah. So, that really encompassed uh, most everything that came out of COP26. There's maybe a few things to add on. One, uh, big one, of course, was the global um, initiative to curb methane emissions, which was championed by the U.S. and Europe, which was uh, really, I I think, a significant win. Another one, maybe uh, a little less visible, uh, was the push for concerns around the ocean and the role it can play being more explicitly Mentioned, which it was at the the conference, and in fact, marine e- ecosystems were recognized as carbon sinks in Article Twenty-One of the Final Decision in Glasgow, which really you know, helps to emphasize the importance of the protection, conservation, and restoration of terrestrial and marine ecosystems and the reduction of greenhouse gases, which I think is is a real step forward, albeit uh, you know a, s- a smaller part of, of everything that was discussed. On the negative side, of course, orc is uh, very uh, correct in mentioning the Disappointment that we all felt, I think, with the wording at the last minute on on coal phasing out versus phasing down. That said, you know, it is still, uh, and we have to take the silver linings that we can from these things. It still was the first time that fossil fuels were explicitly mentioned to be limited, and and that, in its own way, is a step forward. Uh, it is a step in the right direction. Of course, we we do want more, but uh, you know, I, I think that the last comment I would make is this was a very visible COP. It had a lot of coverage. Uh, there's a lot of involvement. There's a lot of people, I think, really paid attention and cared. And what we saw through it was, yes, still some of these lingering political realities and, and how there are obstacles to moving as quickly as we want. But we've also really continued to get to see the growing momentum that there is behind positive change and environmental um, conservation uh, across A broader and broader portion of the population. Uh, And I think that also brings with it some hope.
0: Let's take it a step further then. You've kind of listed some of the successes, some of the disappointments out of the event. If you then relate that to your own investment universe uh, at a kind of a high level, what are the sectors that you see then impacted perhaps both positively and negatively from these outcomes?
2: I think what uh, what's been highlighted is here is the role uh, that emerging and developing economies can play in uh, decarbonization and the delta uh, that they can provide in the reduction of, of carbon emissions. Uh, as they're trying to balance economic growth with uh, decarbonization. Uh, at the same time. So from a portfolio perspective, uh, as well as when one looks at valuations in emerging markets today, there are pockets uh, there uh, that certainly are going to be interesting to watch and that we've also uh, started to allocate into uh, as part of um, our environmental strategies. Uh, So I would say that's uh, that's certainly one uh, key takeaway. But I also think uh, the added focus on natural capital uh, has been a real game changer here. And uh, now nature is being mentioned and prioritized as a way of achieving uh, decarbonization and detoxification and and acknowledging the role that nature plays, exactly as Ed uh, mentioned, as, as a carbon sink, uh, and hence uh, these commitments around deforestation and uh, Alongside sustainable agriculture and and oceans. And what that means from an investment perspective is more focus on agricultural technologies uh, that can uh, help us improve uh, soil. Uh, quality uh, that can help crowd out the use of fertilizer and pesticides. Uh, so there's a whole industry of uh, public companies uh, that are focused on on those extremely important issues. And I think here it's really important to mention uh, that uh, these companies um, have really been overlooked. Uh, and it's almost like the, the energy transition theme uh, three to four years back. Uh, and I think showing some incredibly promising outlooks. Also, in, in regards to what Ed mentioned, in, in regards to improving ocean health, as we know, uh, we've seen uh, a lot of focus around how do we get rid of plastics in the ocean? Uh, a, and as a result, uh, a, again, here in the public markets, uh, there's ample opportunity to support uh, and invest in companies uh, that are trying to address uh, the plastic problem uh, through biodegradable plastics or other technologies that will mean that we don't have the plastic pollution in the ocean as we're, we're seeing today. So those are, are tangible, uh, I would say, themes that that are very much supported by some of the outcomes from, from COP26.
1: Yes, I would say that uh, really, in a way, there's no change for our core portfolio uh, in respect to energy transition. As countries have to meet their net zero targets, there just remains a very clear requirement for uh, the services of many of these companies. Uh, The the change really, exactly as Ulrich said, was also, I think, bringing in more focus onto these issues, uh, these broader environmental issues that concern natural capital and ecosystems, uh, which of course is uh, another part of what we do uh, here. Um, And and that was uh, good to see. The last thing, perhaps, uh, is just to talk about carbon credits. There was uh, also at Glasgow um, a a deal reached between countries on Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, uh, which governs international carbon markets and looks to ensure that emission reductions are not double-counted amongst countries. So bringing a bit of rigor there. And there is indeed an increasing amount of discussion around trading carbon credit policy amongst different uh, countries, the the prospects of potentially carbon border adjustments. Uh, So I think we'll continue to see this interesting area uh, evolve uh, and that this is also an area that we have been active in.
0: When we think about achieving the objectives that I guess we all have in terms of uh, limiting the temperature increase ahead, we think that it's going to involve certainly the public sector and we saw heavy government involvement uh, in COP26, but we also appreciate the private sector has a pretty important role to play in this. Uh, Along that line, we've seen UK and Nordic pension funds committing $130 billion to clean energy and climate investments. How big a deal is that? Uh, not only for the incumbents but also for the smaller companies that make up your universe
2: I think that really of course helps uh, move the needle um, one of those things uh, one of the things we need to watch is uh, where does that money go does it go into infrastructure assets uh, does it go into innovation and and um, if I um, uh, if I took my skeptical hat on uh, uh, I would say a lot of that money still. Uh, goes into sort of save large-scale infrastructure assets within offshore wind, you know, rather large uh, solar installations, uh, etc. cetera. And, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, that's a good thing. But uh, in order to reach the goals— um, of the Paris Agreement, Uh, there is a recent article uh, that I read in order to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement uh, 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 and the net zero. Today, 50% of the solutions of us getting there are at a very, very early stage in terms of uh, technology. So what that means is that without money flowing into innovative technological solutions that today might not be scalable money going into that space, we just will not get there. Uh, And that's why uh, across our strategies, we're not just investing in large caps. We have to acknowledge that part of the solution is to make sure that we allocate risk capital towards solutions uh, that can really move the needle uh, and that can scale very quickly once uh, they become commercial. Uh, and I would say one very, very tangible example of that has been the support that the energy transition strategy uh, that has reached meaningful scale uh, was very early adopt an investor into a risky area uh, of green hydrogen. Now, uh, we have uh, played a very important role as a strategy uh, and as a partner uh, to certain green hydrogen Uh, companies uh, globally and help them accelerate their pipeline of growth by supplying them with growth capital, uh, encouraging these companies to raise capital. In fact, we've anchored a number of capital raises to really help support uh, green hydrogen that can, for example, reach areas uh, of the economy uh, that can only be reached by molecules vis-a-vis electrons. And I would encourage investors, not only investors in Northern Europe, but globally, uh, to uh, continue, uh, but also to accelerate investments into some of these young, promising technologies that show that we can scale and make a meaningful uh, impact. Uh, That's where the solutions need to be. And that's why uh, uh, we kind of live by the tagline in the European in the environmental strategies group, let's be part of the solution. Uh, and that really is how you're part of the solution.
1: Yes, we, we've certainly seen a lot more money uh, coming into this broad space, whether that's uh, from the pension funds you mentioned, endowments, and other sources. And it's great. It's very helpful, whether that's going into ESG funds or larger companies. But uh, exactly as Ulrich said, you know, it's also key to make sure that some of those monies are finding their way towards environmental solution companies that are really uh, actively solving problems. And as part of that, Ulrich mentioned uh, investing in smaller companies too that are getting into innovative, uh, newer uh, approaches and technologies. And for us, you know, th- that is important, not just to do it through uh, secondary uh, markets, but also through primary markets, because what's really going to help um, – this sector to grow and for these objectives uh, to be met uh, will be not just buying shares in established companies, but by actually funding smaller companies uh, through primary transactions, giving them money uh, to buy. Uh, facilities, accelerate their R&D, hire people, putting money in the ground. And that is an element of some of our strategies where we make sure to do uh, a number of these primary transactions so that we're actually funding the expansion of these businesses, um, which is uh, important and different from just uh, investing in the secondary market.
0: I think you mentioned in your earlier response, carbon credits. I'm just curious, uh, do you invest in carbon credits? Would you?
1: Yes. In fact, we were a very early investor in the European uh, compliance market, um, and we have looked at other carbon credit markets, um, including voluntary markets and other geographies as well.
2: What we are seeing, though, in the carbon credit market is uh, that it is as of late, uh, and I'm uh, talking more the last one two, three months, we've seen a huge amount of uh, institutional money uh, coming into the carbon credit markets. And hence, pricing of carbon credits, whilst we're incredibly bullish, we uh, believe that part of that reason – uh, price movement has been characterized by institutional flow. Um, so it's not unlikely as we potentially see power prices come off as we exit the uh, the winter uh, and as gas supply is starting to become more plentiful in uh, Europe that we could see a small retracement in, uh, in, in carbon credits. But uh, ultimately, on the longer term, uh, there's absolutely no uh, doubt in our minds where carbon credits um, are going in particular as uh, this market is becoming... Uh, uh, a global market uh, which is really where we need to get to
0: you highlighted Ed how visible this cop has been that there was so much more attention paid to it and that hopefully should help uh, all of us governments uh, companies as well uh, make it easier to be green if you will Uh, and also it should hopefully become harder to be less green Uh, what sectors do you think will face the most pressure then and and how soon might that happen
2: I think that's a great uh, question, Uh, uh, and as part of the environmental strategies group, uh, uh, we have a certain strategy, uh, the earth strategy, uh, which is an equity long short strategy where we uh, do exactly this. We go long companies. Uh, uh, that are what we call environmental champions uh, in their respective areas across energy transition and ecosystem restoration, uh, where we can indeed uh, take on short positions in companies that are either unwilling or unable to adopt environmental sustainable practices. And uh, what this means is that equity prices go down for those companies uh, that are engaging in unsustainable environmental practices, uh, you're ultimately raising the cost of capital for those companies. And that's exactly where we want to be. We want to make sure that we're allocating capital to companies that are adopting environmental sustainable practices uh, and taking that away from or at least increasing the cost of capital, increasing the hurdle rate for unsustainable companies in this area to raise financing for unsustainable practices. And hence, we can sort of recycle capital out of unsustainable companies into more sustainable companies. So that's absolutely core to what we do. But of course, that doesn't just happen on the long-short side. Uh, What we're doing in our uh, long-only strategies uh, is that we're uh, identifying themes Uh, that we think um, will outperform in the uh, current macroeconomic and regulatory environment uh, we have and uh, support those across market caps and across uh, geographies.
1: So, you know, I think one... aspect of the the question was, where is it becoming harder to be unsustainable? And it it feels like we're observing that in the global automotive industry, where we've had a number of of companies be quite successful recently, one uh, past the trillion dollar uh, mark in market capitalization. Uh, There's just been a, a large number of new companies coming to market. And it certainly feels that we've passed. Uh, Sort of a a critical point there where it's just harder to hold on to internal combustion engine models and and indeed even kind of uh, the slow path to go to electric vehicles via uh, hybrids. I mean, more and more, it feels at the company level, there is a, a desire to pivot as quickly as possible.
0: Thanks very much. I have to say this has been a really interesting discussion because it's kind of taken us from these generic discussions about COP26 and what seem quite abstract discussions to where, if you'll permit me, the rubber hits the road and we start talking about, uh, about companies and sectors. If I can summarize a bit what you shared with us, uh, you characterize COP26 as inevitably perhaps good cop Uh, If we start with the good news, we had India's commitment to net zero, hopefully closer cooperation between the U.S. and China, commitments to reverse deforestation, curbing methane emissions. So clearly all all very good and very encouraging on the perhaps not quite so good side. We seem to be on target for at best a one8 Uh, degree increase in temperatures when we really should be at 1.5. So as always, more needs to be done. uh, And I'm sure you're going to continue to be quite busy. If we think about the private sector's involvement in all of this, which is growing and, and very positive, but then we also need to pay attention to where that money's going. On one hand, into perhaps what we'd call now traditional uh, ESG infrastructure investments like offshore wind and so on, but really where we need to see the money goes into a lot more early stage technologies because that's what we're going to need to reach the goals. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you'd like more information, please reach out to your BNP Paribas Asset Management contact or check out our Investors Corner blog. For those of you who have Alexa, you can ask Alexa to enable investment insights or search for Investment Insights on Amazon under the category Alexa Skills. My thanks to Ed and Ulrich for sharing their insights.
2: Thank you very much for having us, Daniel.
0: Thank you, Daniel. Please join us next week when I'll be the one who's answering the questions as I share with you our outlook for 2022. Until then, we hope you stay safe and take care. This podcast presentation includes a discussion on current market events and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BMP Paribas Asset Management. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the
1: publication date.